Before we open God's word together, let's bow our heads in prayer. Heavenly Father, it is so good to be nearing thy presence in this special way as we look into thy word together. We're thankful that we have this opportunity to spend time together around thy word, to look to the things that have been recorded for us for learning, for comfort, for encouragement, for correction. Heavenly Father, we need all of these things. And as we consider our lives in the light of eternity, we pray now that thy spirit would be here among us and that he would teach us in this afternoon hour. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. For this afternoon's meditation, I'd like to read a portion of the gospel as recorded by John in uh, chapter 6. John chapter 6. And I'd like to begin reading with the 25th verse. John 6, 25. This event happens uh, shortly after the feeding of the 5,000, and uh, Jesus crossed over the Sea of Galilee to Capernaum. Verse 25 says, And when they had found him on the other side of the sea, they said unto him, Rabbi, when camest thou hither? Jesus answered them and said, Verily, verily, I say unto you, Ye seek me not because ye saw the miracles, but because ye did eat of the loaves and were filled. Labor not for the meat which perisheth, for that meat which endureth unto but for that meat which endureth unto everlasting life, which the Son of Man shall give unto you. For him hath God the Father sealed. Then said they unto him, What shall we do that we might work the works of God? Jesus answered and said unto them, This is the work of God, that ye believe on him whom he hath sent. They said therefore unto him, What sign showest thou then that we may see and believe thee? What dost thou work? Our fathers did eat manna in the desert. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Then Jesus said unto them, Verily, verily, I say unto you, Moses gave you not that bread from heaven, but my Father giveth you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he which cometh down from heaven and giveth life unto the world. Then said they unto him, Lord, evermore give us this bread. And Jesus said unto them, I am the bread of life. He that cometh to me shall never hunger, and he that believeth on me shall never thirst. But I said unto you, that ye also have seen me, and believe not. All that the Father giveth me shall come to me, and him that cometh to me I will in no wise cast out. For I came down from heaven not to do mine own will, but the will of him that sent me. And this is the Father's will which hath sent me, that of all which he hath given me I should lose nothing but should raise it up again at the last day. For this is the will of him that sent me, that everyone which seeth the Son and believeth on him may have everlasting life, and I will raise him up at the last day. The Jews then murmured at him because he said, I am the bread which came down from heaven. They said, Is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? 
How is it then that he saith, I came down from heaven? Jesus therefore answered and said unto them, Murmur not among yourselves. No man can come to me except the Father which hath sent me draw him, and I will raise him up at the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they shall be all taught of God. Every man therefore that hath heard and hath learned of the Father cometh unto me. Not that any man hath seen the Father, save he which is of God, he hath seen the Father. Verily, verily, I say unto you, he that believeth on me hath everlasting life. I am that bread of life. Your fathers did eat manna in the wilderness and are dead. This is the bread which came down, cometh down from heaven, that a man may eat thereof and not die. I am the living bread which came down from heaven. If any man eat of this bread, he shall live forever. And the bread that I will give is my flesh, which I will give for the life of the world. The Jews therefore strove among themselves, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? And Jesus said unto them, Verily, verily, I say unto you, Except ye eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, ye have no life in you. Whoso eateth my flesh and drinketh my blood hath eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. For my flesh is meat indeed, and my blood is drink indeed. He that eateth my flesh and drinketh my blood dwelleth in me, and I in him. As the living Father hath sent me, and I live by the Father, so he that eateth me, even he shall live by me. This is that bread which came down from heaven, not as your fathers did eat manna and are dead. He that eateth of this bread shall live forever. These things said he in the synagogue as he taught in Capernaum. Many therefore of his disciples, when they had heard this, said, This is a hard saying. Who can hear it? When Jesus knew in himself that his disciples murmured at it, he said unto them, Doth this offend you? What and if he shall see the Son of Man ascend up where he was before? It is the Spirit that quickeneth. The flesh profiteth nothing. The words that I speak unto you, they are spirit and they are life. I've read until the 63rd verse. This is a pretty lengthy chapter. And... In my own meditation at home, as I've been thinking about this subject, what it means to believe, um, I I was drawn to this this passage in particular because of some of the things Christ says and some of the hard sayings that are in it. A surface reading of this, I think, would make anyone wince a little bit the things that Christ said is, says of himself, eating his flesh and drinking his blood. And that's a, an obviously repulsive statement. But we need to go through the whole discourse, at least skim it, in order to understand what it was that Christ was saying and understand why it's important for us today. He had just finished feeding 5,000 men and women and probably some children, too. If you go back and read through what we didn't read in the sixth chapter, you'll see that they had been three days without food. 
and he wasn't going to send them away. You know, we just had Eastern camp not that long ago. It was over a thousand of us. What do you think would have happened at camp if the food ran out? Would people have stuck around for three more days for the spiritual food that they were getting? Or at the first signs of a little bit of grumbling tummies, would people say, well, that's enough, uh, let's go. I think we're pretty used to convenience in our day and age, especially in this uh, good country that we live in. And so as soon as we feel a little twinge of, of pain or discomfort, we automatically want to do something about it. We're not too interested in, in, in hardship. But I can imagine as they were there in the wilderness and as they were listening to Christ talk, you know, when it became clear that he wasn't going to be wrapping up necessarily anytime soon, perhaps the, there would have been some that said, well, I, I was going to eat this other half of my sandwich, but I better tuck that away for tomorrow because it looks like this is going to take a while still. He's, still. he's still teaching. And even when that last little bit was gone, then Jesus said, give you them to eat. I'm not going to send them away fainting. And so he fed them through a miracle, divided the bread and fish. And even the nature of that miracle is interesting. You know, in the Old Testament, Moses didn't have to break any bread or fish to feed the multitude. It simply rained food from heaven. Whether it was manna or quails, food just dropped from the sky. Christ could have replicated that, but he chose instead to use his disciples' hands as the ones through which he was going to perform this miracle. Christ was always interested in, 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 a, in a practical method of teaching. And can you imagine what it must have been like when Christ said, well, here's a half a loaf for you and a little piece of fish. You go feed that big group of people over there. Then you have to go with that small amount and start with the first one and maybe give them just a little bit because you don't want to, you want to stretch it as far as you can and Suddenly it starts multiplying. The food doesn't run out. Then you can be more generous. And as they were more and more generous, I can imagine with this, seeing that it didn't run out, there must have been quite a, a reaction to this. But Christ says something really interesting in the section that we read. And he could see the hearts of people. So what he says here is certainly true. He says, verily, verily, or truly, truly, you seek me not because you saw the miracle, but because you were fed. You're after free food. You weren't even really interested in the miraculous nature by which you were fed. You were just fed, and that was enough. So you came for more free food. Then he says, labor not for the meat which perisheth, but for the meat which endureth unto everlasting life, which the Son of Man shall give you. Now, they understood. They had been with him for at least three days, hearing his teaching, and so they understood that what he was talking about, this laboring, this had to do with the work of God and doing the things of God. Because they asked him, what shall we do that we might work the works of God? And now Jesus says something very interesting here. Something that kind of flies in the face of modern Reformation theology. This is the work of God. This is what I want you to do. Ye believe on him whom he has sent. This is, what, this is your work, to believe on him whom he sent. Now, people will right away quote, we're not saved of works, we're not saved of works. Yes, but Jesus himself said, this is the work you've got to worry about. 
This is the labor. He, he says it again. It's not a mistake. So what is this work that God is interested in? The choice of belief. The choice of belief. And that's something that must be done cautiously. Work is never unconsciously done. You don't wake up in the morning and then somehow find yourself at work doing something. It's a choice. You set your alarm, you get up in the morning, you go to work, you do your job. It's a choice. It's an active choice. Now, it's interesting in, in verse 30 that the people that, were, that he was speaking with asks them, what sign showest thou then that we may see and believe thee? What dost thou work? They had just seen a miracle. And now they're asking for another sign. I think they wanted a second feeding. And they give them a hint. They said, our fathers did eat manna in the desert. You remember that? Maybe that would be a good sign for us, a little bit more food. Somehow when God does something miraculous, for the unbelieving heart, it's never quite enough. That's part of the work, I think, of God, too, is, is realizing that the work is of God. It's a miracle when he does it. But, like I've said before, in order for it to be true faith, there must also be the capacity for doubt. So, you must choose to believe. And that means clearing, clearing your life of those things that would prevent faith. When faith itself is, is, a, is a funny thing. It's, it's a miracle. It's a gift from God. But it's also something that we exercise, something that is dependent on us to some degree. How exactly that works, don't ask me to explain it to you. But I know that Jesus marveled at, at only one thing when he was here on earth, the abundance or the lack of faith. That was the only thing that caused him to react in amazement. Faith where there should have been faith and there was none, and faith when he didn't really expect to find faith. That surprised him. So there is this component that, is, that, that he, he seeks in us, something that he's looking for. Jesus now uses the example of manna. They want to talk about manna with him, so he doesn't, as, as was often the case with Jesus, when someone wanted something from Jesus that was carnal, he would take the conversation and he would turn it to something that was spiritual in nature. So Jesus right away clears things up. They were looking for some sign. You know, Moses had promised a prophet like, like he was that was going to come, and Christ was indeed the fulfillment of who that prophet was really going to be. And they figured that Moses somehow had given them that bread from heaven. So Jesus has to clear this up, and he says, Look, verily, verily, I say unto you, Moses gave you not that bread from heaven. Moses didn't do it. God did. But that was not the point. That manna ran out. There came a time when that manna stopped showing up every morning, when they were getting into the promised land, when it was time to cross over now, and the season of bread from heaven, of manna from heaven, was done. And there's a bigger sign, a better sign that has appeared. God is now giving the true bread from heaven, which was Christ himself. 
And he's going to explain what that means. He says in verse 33, For the bread of God is he which cometh down from heaven and giveth life unto the world. The one who came down from heaven that's giving life now to the whole world. The people in the, in, in, uh, even perhaps 150 years ago would have understood a statement like uh, bread is the staff of life. It's the thing that supports life. Daily bread, of course, uh, uh, is, is taken directly from the Lord's Prayer, but it was understood as something that was needed for everyday life. Bread was the one thing, uh, one of the, the few foods that you could, you could take with you. It was carbohydrates, it was energy for you, it was, it was portable, and it had to be made fresh every day. It spoiled after a certain short period of time relative. And uh, it was the thing that, that gave life. Where bread ran out, people died. It was that serious. And so Christ is now talking about this bread that's coming down from heaven that's going to give life to the whole world. And to his crowd of listeners, that sounded pretty good. Then said they unto him, Lord, evermore give us this bread. Okay, let's have some of this bread then, this bread that gives life to the world. This sounds like pretty good stuff. And then Jesus has to say, look, I am the bread of life. And I can imagine that they were a bit disappointed by that. So we're not going to see another miracle. He's, he's talking in riddles again. And he says something interesting. He says, He that cometh to me shall never hunger, and he that believeth on me shall never thirst. So this bread from heaven supplies everything you need, not just your hunger, but your thirst too. If you think about the hunger for physical things, we, we, we're very familiar with that. We know what, what it's like to be a little bit hungry. You know what that feels like. You know you, your body needs it. You know you feel weak when you don't have enough food. What's the spiritual hunger then? That the spiritual bread is going to satisfy. I can think of a few things. One, I think there's that sense of in, in the cosmic scale of things being on the right side of things. That necessity, now we know that there is a right and wrong. Everyone understands that. I don't think people will argue with that one. There's a right and there's a wrong. And you want to be on the right side, on the side of good and right. But we know from our own personal experience that we often do wrong. So I think the first hunger, maybe one of the primary hungers, spiritual hungers that we all have, is the desire for pardon. To be made right, to be on the right side of the, the, the grand scales. I'm reminded of in ancient Egypt, uh, the culture that was there. They had this, this idea that when you passed from, from this life into the next, one of the things that happened was your heart was weighed against the feather of truth in these, in these balances. And if, you're, if, if, the, uh, if the feather of truth was heavier than your heart, your, you, your heart was no good. But if your heart was heavier than the feather of truth, then you were permitted uh, into the bliss of, of the afterlife. And I think people still have this, this, this very you know, basic understanding that there's somehow, I need to pass a certain bar in order to experience something beyond this life, something good. There's a desire for pardon. And then there's something else. There's also this desire for everlasting life. 
We know that when we eat physical food, it's only good for a time. And we know even, you know, when we pray for someone's healing, when someone is sick, we, we pray for their recovery, but we pray knowing that one day there will be no recovery. This body will go into the ground. And so there's this understanding that everything here on this earth has some sort of an expiry date attached to it. And, but there must be something beyond this. We all have this, uh, someone once called it, a God-authored longing for heaven. This idea of, of an eternal life and, and, a, and a, a, a good life with God that's perpetual, that, that never ends. And there has to be something, I forget which philosopher it was, that said, for us to have this sort of a longing for eternity within us, it makes no sense in this reality that we would have a thirst for something with nothing to satisfy that thirst. Perhaps it was C.S. Lewis that, that mentioned something like that. That we would, if we have this thirst, there must be something to satisfy it. We have a, we have a thirst for water, water satisfies that thirst. We have a hunger for bread, bread satisfies that thirst. But what about the longing for heaven? What about for something beyond? And this is all somehow wrapped up in believing. Believing what? Because Jesus finishes after he says this to them, I am the bread of life. He says, but I said unto you, as he said right at the beginning, that ye also have seen me and believe not. You're not going to be satisfied. And I can say that freely to everyone listening here, that if you are unwilling to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, you will not be satisfied, and I can't do anything about that or say anything that would change that for you. That's between you and him. If you will not believe, sorry, you're going to leave here with that, that empty gnawing inside of you. Verse 37 is an interesting one. All that the Father giveth me shall come to me. And him that cometh to me, I will in no wise cast out. Seems to be a contradiction. God gives people to Jesus, right? But then he also says, look, if you come to me, I won't get rid of you. How can this be? This is a beautiful mystery. Our will, again, is in time. God is outside of time. And he tells us it from both ends of the scale. So we can be, have double assurance. If you respond, then the Father has sent you. The Father's given you to Christ. And if you've come to Christ, he's already been at work ahead of time. You don't need to reconcile exactly how this works. Only know that Christ will not cast you out if you're seeking him. And if you're seeking him, it's because he's already been working. What a blessing. And I think when we try to get all tangled up in this and, and sort it out, it's, it's, I remember in mathematics the idea of dimensions and, you, you know, a point, which is one dimension, and then two dimensions is a line, something defined along a plane. And then you go into the third dimension and now you have height. And fourth dimension, I think, is time. And each dimension is, is, is a totally new understanding of what came before. So don't try to give yourself a charley horse in your head trying to figure this out. Just simply accept it and see in it the love of the Father who says, look, I've already been working ahead of time 
to prepare the way for you. And if you're coming along, don't worry, you won't be, you won't be thrown out. That's as simple as it needs to be for anyone. For I came down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him that sent me. And here's the will. He tells us, and this is the Father's will which hath sent me, that of all which he hath given me, I should lose nothing. You know, I I remember hearing some uh, express that uh, on their testimony night when they were before the church explaining what the Lord had done in their life, that they had a great fear that having accepted the Lord, they would somehow fall away from him and be lost eternally. That's a foolish fear. That's an empty fear. Christ himself says, The Father which has sent me, that of all which he has given me, I should lose nothing. That's the will of God. Can you lose your salvation? I think Hebrews has some answers to that. And you don't want to be foolhardy with such a precious gift as the blood of his Son. But You'll never lose it by accident or slip up and suddenly find out that you're lost. God loves you too much, has made too many preparations to allow that to happen. It takes a willful disobedience, a willful persistent disobedience on the part of of the soul to be lost from that, that sort of a love. And this is the will of him that sent me, that everyone which seeth the Son and believeth on him may have everlasting life, and I will raise him up at the last day. Now, of course, those that heard him thought he was making a bit too much of himself. I mean, yes, we're willing to accept a a teacher with a new perspective, a new way of looking at things, and a new thing to say. But by saying that he came down from heaven, isn't that a little bit grand? Isn't that a little bit too much? He said, we know Joseph. I don't know if Joseph was still alive at this time. At some point, he had, he had passed on. We only read about Mary. He knows the father, his mother, and his, and his siblings. Who does this guy think he is? How could he uh, speak such big things about himself? And Jesus has to remind them again, look, no one can come to me except the father draw him. Now, what does that mean? What might that mean? Who does the father draw? The humble. He gives grace to the humble. He seeks for the broken and the contrite heart. Those are the ones he's looking for and drawing. And if you're proud, it says he resists you. He resists the proud. And if God resists you, what are you going to do? How are you going to approach him? If you've ever played with some powerful magnets and you switch them so that the poles are facing each other, north to north or south to south, and you try to push together those magnets, <laughs> there's resistance there. And the, and the and the, the harder you push, the more difficult it becomes. So it is with the proud. And Christ could see into the hearts of those that were listening to him. He knew. He knew what their issue was. Until there had been a breaking, until they had fallen on the rock and been broken, as, as he says in another place, there would be no coming to God. God wasn't drawing them in that sense because of their pride. Then he says very clearly in verse 48, I am that bread of life. I am that, that thing that will satisfy that hunger that you have. Not physical hunger, but spiritual hunger. He reminds them, your fathers ate manna in the wilderness. They died. In fact, the ones that ate manna, many of them didn't enter in because of unbelief, as you can read in Hebrews. 
Don't think that just because you got some form of heavenly bread that satisfied your flesh, that that somehow has some lasting value to you. I think of it kind of like when we have singing. I remember as an unconverted person, I, I enjoyed singing. I loved singing the hymns. And I felt good singing the hymns. But as long as my heart remained unsurrendered to Christ, it was like that manna that came down from heaven. The Bible even calls it angel's food. That manna from heaven that tasted sweet in the mouth, but still left you hungry at the end. The true hunger had not been fully satisfied. So we have to be careful, even with spiritual things, things that we know are good. That manna that came down from heaven was good. But it was not enough because there had to be another bread from heaven that came. Then Jesus says something shocking. He says, I am the living bread which came down from heaven. Now there's no living bread unless it's got bacteria growing on it. That yeast grows in the bread, it expands, then it gets baked and the, the original yeast is killed. But he calls himself a living bread. If any man eat of this bread, he shall live forever. So there's a living bread that gives life. This is something new. And then he says, and the bread that I will give is my flesh, which I will give for the life of the world. Now, that, this became truly offensive. This became something that it was a, a line too far. The Jews therefore strove among themselves, saying, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? Jesus goes further, as he often does. You think that's offensive? Listen to this. Verily, verily, truly, truly, I say unto you, except ye eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, ye have no life in you. Wow. This must have been something that people stepped back at. First of all, for a Jew to drink blood was absolutely unheard of, of any kind. The, uh, when animals were slaughtered, they had to be fully bled, properly bled out before they could be uh, consumed. If you remember, uh, the, in the time of King Saul, uh, they were so hungry that they began uh, killing the animals and, 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 and roasting them right there, and they hadn't even properly bled them out, and this was, this was an offensive thing to God. But Jesus says this. So, now, Jesus didn't just say offensive things for the sake of being offensive. He wasn't a provocateur that was looking to just get a sensationalistic reaction the way someone might today on social media or uh, <clears throat> some video. No. I thought about this. What, what is this flesh and what is this blood? We know that his blood was spilled. But he says, eat my flesh and drink my blood. What, what might that mean? Uh, Hebrews 10, uh, chapter 4. I'll just read a short section from here. For it is not possible that the blood of bulls and of goats should take away sin. That was the Old Testament system of sacrifice. Wherefore, when he cometh into the world, this is Christ now, he saith, Sacrifice and offering thou wouldst not, but a body hast thou prepared me. In burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin thou hast had no pleasure. 
Then said I, and this is Christ now, lo, I come. In the volume of the book, it is written of me, to do thy will, O God. There's another place it says, too, for a body hast thou prepared for me to do thy will. It's from the Psalms. To eat the flesh of Christ is to do his will. His body was the vehicle of service for the Lord. The body that God had given him was to do the will of God. So if we're to eat his flesh, as the Bible says, that means to do his will, to do the will of God. It's not enough to have some kind of mental assent. In today's modern age, I think we've, 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 we've cheapened this idea of believing. We've taken it from something that's practical and useful and made it into something theoretical and philosophical. We've made it into some uh, uh, exercise of mental assent as opposed to actually doing something. So if you're going to take in Christ, to eat his flesh, that means to do his will. Now what's his blood got to do with it? Well, we know his blood was shed for us. His life for our life. And that blood, I believe, when he says to drink my blood, that means to have the same life that he had in him. To be animated by the same spirit. To do and to love the same things that he did and loved. Now, is this something we can do on our own? No. This is a marvelous work of grace. God does the work. We don't... It, it is through, uh, as, we, as we heard this morning, the way that the the thorn in the flesh was dealt with was not just by simply knuckling down and trying harder. It was an understanding of a whole new way of looking at things. That God's grace was actually going to be working through that thorn in the flesh to produce something supernatural. And that thorn in the flesh was actually an enabler, not a hindrance to the spiritual life. But that doesn't make any sense in the flesh. We only see it from the other side. We say, well, this is, this is hindering my ministry. This is in the way. This is something that detracts from what I can do for the Lord. Well, the proper realization is that God does it through us in the very first place. And so we have to remember that, that when, when we talk about these things and when we talk about belief, it's, a, it's, a, it's a, a clearing of space for God to work, not the actual work itself. He's going to do the work. He will provide. But I need to keep that space clear so he has a place in my life to work. I have a workbench at home down in the basement, and it notoriously collects stuff. I take things down and I put it down on my bench and think, okay, I got, I'm going to put this away. Well, pretty soon, that workbench, which could be a useful surface, is all piled full of stuff. And when I need to do something, I have to push a few things aside to create a little bit of space so I can do a little bit of work. And then every so often it gets really bad and then I've got to actually clear things off and put it away. And then I have room to work again. And I think, well, how did I let it get like that in the first place? I think our lives are a lot like that. 
that workbench, gets cluttered up. And we give God less and less space with which to work until simply he's crowded out. He can't do any useful work on, on, the, on the workbench of our life. We need to be careful. That's the work we have to do. Strive to enter into that rest, the writer of Hebrews says. Now, it sounds like an oxymoron. It sounds like a contradiction. But that's really what it is. Keep it clear so that you can rest in the one who gives you that rest. Christ elaborates, for my flesh is meat indeed and my blood is drink indeed. This is, this is talking, I think, about the sufficiency of what Christ is and does in our life. You know, sometimes we think, well, I gotta give up certain things to follow Christ. There's, there's, there's gonna be a lack in my life. I won't be able to do this. I won't be able to go here. I won't be able to have this experience. Christ says, no, you're looking at it all wrong. If you really want to be satisfied, then all you need is to do my will and to have my life in you. Christ never, never suffered from, uh, um, from the, 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 the discomfort of, of unrealized expectations. I and mean, that's where disappointments typically come from, right? We have an expectation for something. It's not fulfilled. We feel empty. We feel shortchanged. Christ never suffered from that because he said, I always do the things that please my Father. And he could dwell in his Father's love and experience that sort of fulfillment. Always being in the right place, never missing an opportunity. There was a fulfillment and a joy that came out of that. If we want to have that sort of life of fulfillment, we have to realize that the sufficiency will only be found in him. It's when we add other things that we actually shortchange ourselves. Again, like that workbench, the more that I clutter things up, the less useful and the less satisfied I am with what I've done. Jesus ended this, this saying from this portion that we've read by, by saying, you know, there were those that said, this is a hard saying, who can hear it? They basically said, we're, we're done with this man. First of all, he's not going to give us any more free food. Second, he's telling us things that sound offensive to our ears. Let's leave. And Jesus says, he, he, he sends them away with this interesting question. He says, doth this offend you? Do you do not like what I'm saying to you? What and if ye shall see the Son of Man ascend up where he was before? Seems like an odd statement to make. Here's your window of opportunity. He says, the Son of Man is here right with you, right now, telling you the secret to life itself, to eternal life. What if you were to see me leave? Where else are you going to go for those things? I think this is something that a lot of people don't consider when they think about Christ. They, they look at, at Christ and they say, yeah, he's got some good things, but I'm not so crazy about this part. I don't like this part of his teaching. Okay, where else are you going to go? What's your plan B? Have you thought about that? For those that have been maybe sitting on the fence or 
not really sure, whatever it might be, what, however you choose to hedge your bets, what are you going to do as backup? What are you going to do when, the, as they say, the grim reaper comes calling and it's the end for you? It's here. He's here. He's right now talking to you and explaining to you the key to having a life of fulfillment and how to achieve what everyone is looking for, everlasting life. You know, in the modern age, they talk about using AI and this idea that maybe one day we can digitize our personalities and so like a computer program on a hard drive, it can just keep living on. Think, how do you know that's really you? It may be a program that mimics the types of things that you would say. But is that really you? Does that sound satisfying to you? Is that the answer to eternal life? You can try. There are some that do some pretty silly things. Some rich people have had their brains frozen thinking that maybe one day technology will get to the point where they can be resurrected in the future. Or their whole body even, in cryogenic storage. The solution is here. The window of opportunity is now. You can choose whether or not you will be offended or whether you will come. Because if you will come, he won't cast you out. That's the good news of the gospel. So be careful what you do with your time. We, we never know exactly how long that window of opportunity is. People may have thought, I'll come back next Sabbath and hear this rabbi preach. And then the next Sabbath, maybe Christ was somewhere else and they missed that opportunity. Thought, well, another time. And then perhaps they heard the news that he had been killed. There would be no more sermons from the rabbi the way that they had heard before. The window of opportunity was gone. Of course, that was really just the beginning, as we know the, the plan of salvation that God had from the, from, the, from the very beginning. But I would encourage anyone who is really truly searching, consider some of these things that Christ said. Don't be offended at just because of a surface level reading of his word. Look at your own needs and see what he offers and consider. Now is the day of grace. May the Lord add whatever was lacking to what was said. Would a brother please select it? Oh dear Heavenly Father, and our Savior and Lord Jesus Christ and Holy Ghost, that uh, even this afternoon hour, are looking down on the face of this earth, is there anybody that's hungry for thy word and listening to thy word. We are very thankful, dear Heavenly Father, we got this manna from above. And uh, unlike the manna that uh, the forefathers of Israel were eating in the desert, uh, the one that we enjoyed this afternoon hour through thy servant, our brother, is the word from thee that uh, as Jesus said in his time, uh, when we eat of that bread, that we never, that we'll die or we'll have a life eternal. Dear Heavenly Father, 
we heard uh, through this sermon that uh, the people were at one point following Jesus because they were fed, following their carnal uh, thinking. And yet again, uh, a small number, uh, that's the, his disciples, did stay with him when he delivered this hard sermon that a man has to eat his flesh and drink his blood. And that's to symbolize that we have to participate in his path, in his way, go through that door that he is our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, and be one with him. The Heavenly Father, there are many things that are sometimes for our narrow mind, hard to understand, but we want to approach thee with an open heart and uh, faith. And may, I faith, may our faith be increased every single day we pray thee. That we might be simple in our mind, but uh, abundant in faith. That's what we uh, need to do. Dear Heavenly Father, may uh, our spirits be each and every day uh, quickened as they were today, uh, listening to thy word, uh, uh, praying to thee, uh, and communicating with thee. And we know that uh, you are Heavenly Father, and you are ready to give us many blessings, uh, spiritual mostly, and the other as well, that uh, come after asking. We asking thee for wisdom, we asking thee for thy holy work in our church, amongst our elders and ministers, amongst the parents, amongst the children, amongst the guests, that thy spirit may uh, dwell, may steer us, may uh, uh, awaken our spirits to respond in kind and trust thee and faithfully go with thee to the end. The Heavenly Father, we are reminded of those that are not able to come today with us to share these blessings that are shut in and sick and uh, in different uh, troubles and temptations and sufferings. We ask thee, dear Heavenly Father, even those that are traveling to be with them and uh, fulfill their needs, spiritual and any other needs that they might have in their life. The Heavenly Father, uh, there are so many things we should be thankful for thy engagement in our life on a daily basis, on an hourly basis that uh, we if we would, uh, to mention everything, we would never stop in uh, praying to Thee and praising Thy most holy name. Dear Heavenly Father, uh, for all these things, we pray in the precious name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. In conclusion, uh, so you think about these words of Christ. He didn't say, just say, 
just take my body or just take my blood. It had to be both. Can it be that we can take only one? Yes. Christ also warned us. There were those in the last day that came to him and said, Lord, Lord, didn't we do all these things for you? They had the body of Christ, perhaps. They were, they were doing the things that Christ did. But without the inner life, they become dead works. It's like a corpse. Uh, the, the body is still all there, but the, the, the blood of life is not running through it. It's not enough. We must have the inner life. That's how we are in Christ. And of course, if we have that blood of Christ in us that has washed us away, it washed away our sins and given us new life, it will come out. The works of Christ will follow. Let's remember what Christ said, not try to take anything out of it or add anything to it, but simply accept it as he said. Now is the day of grace. This is the opportunity we have been given. May God bless what was said to our hearts and be with us in this upcoming week. Amen. This concludes our service.